evening. It's wonderful to have all of you joining us tonight. We're ready for a great night. We're uh, glad to have one of our very favorite in the whole world uh, social studies teachers, uh, Todd Edmond, with us here tonight. Let's give him a big welcome. <laughs> Todd's been enhancing a lot of the, the social studies courses, and uh, I don't know if he's included this story yet, but you remember that time when George Washington was crossing the Delaware River? And then he turned to one of the soldiers and said, you know, whoever's humming the theme from Jaws is going to get thrown out the boat. <laughs> so I'm not sure if that's in there yet or not, but I'm still working on that. All right, it's time for Dr. John and the Technology Spotlight. Ooh, we're going to talk about mystery tonight. Get ready. I want to tell you if you haven't already heard about the mysterious ninth planet. And we're not talking about Pluto, remember? <laughs> that, that was the ninth planet, but we changed it to not a planet, a dwarf planet. So some researchers think that there might be another planet out there, and so now it's going to be the ninth planet, right? So if you look at this picture, this is probably not what it looks like, but you know, since we haven't seen it, somebody had to draw a picture of it. And uh, it's going to be roughly five to ten times the size of Earth and way, way out there, but still going around uh, the sun, like all of the other planets in our solar system. So why in the world do they think there's another planet out there? I want to talk just a minute about this so we can talk about what the Tech of the Week is about. Okay? <laughs> so uh, if you uh, look at this diagram, this shows different orbits. Most of the planets all orbit on a plane. So they, they almost look like a disk if you draw out all their orbits. But if you look carefully, you can see some really strange orbits. And as the astronomers were studying way out at the edges of our solar system, they found that there were a lot of objects that had a strange orbit like this. And a lot of them even kind of seemed to move similar to each other. And so they started doing theories, making theories on why that is and how that could happen. And their very most plausible theory was Planet Nine. And that's where it came from. So now there's a whole bunch of research in searching for that Planet Nine. If you look at this diagram, you can see the yellow circle. That's where Planet Nine should be. Only that's a huge orbit, so uh, it's a lot of area of the sky. Uh, Around our solar system, we have the Kuiper Belt. Now, if you look way in there, way close, you can see Jupiter. And that gives you an idea of how big this is. And you can see the red line right there. That's Pluto out there at the Kuiper Belt. There are a whole bunch of objects there. And so uh, for some of these objects to be on that really strange orbit, there would have to be something affecting it. And uh, they're using the paths of these different objects to calculate that orbit, but it would be way, way out there. And the search is on, everyone's looking, and now for the tech, finally, okay. Uh, the, some scientists at Harvard University have a new theory. Maybe it's not Planet Nine. They think that maybe it's a black hole. <laughs> you know, and this makes you kind of laugh because, you know, how could it be a black hole? Well. If a black hole was the right mass, it would be about five to 10 times as heavy as Earth, 
which would be about the size of a grapefruit, you know. That's kind of hard to imagine, isn't it? <laughs> so that's a teensy, tiny black hole. And in order for black holes to even exist like that would take some new uh, physics and things. But actually, some of the mathematical predictions have said that it's possible, but it would have had to happen really early on, so they call them primordial black holes. And this theory's been around a while, and you know some of us might kind of laugh at it, but not too many years ago, that's what we were doing about black holes in general, isn't it? <laughs> and uh, remember, the idea of a black hole is that it has so much gravity that it pulls even light in, and that's why it's black. And uh, usually the way that happens is you have enough material, enough mass, that, and it gets compacted enough that the event horizon is higher than the surface of the object. And that's when, when you get the black hole, because it starts sucking light in, I guess you could say. And um, nobody really knows what it would look like to look straight at a black hole, because we haven't really seen it. You know, we've, we have some pictures of a really far away massive black hole, but if you've looked at those pictures, you, you can't quite tell what it is, can you? It's blurry. Uh, but uh, we know that it would probably look black, and maybe instead of seeing the black hole, what you would see is a distortion in what's behind the black hole. But the problem here is that the black hole's so small that it would probably be hard to see. So these researchers came up with an idea that we should be able to see some uh, light, some radiation light that's very, very distinctive when this black hole eats something like a comet way out there. <laughs> and so they're actually getting ready to start looking for it. You know, if we're gonna look for Planet Nine, we might as well look for a primordial black hole. Uh, this reminds me of another planet. It reminds me of Vulcan. Now, I'm not talking about Spock's Vulcan, though th th that one, well, maybe it is, it's the same one. But back in the 1800s, a mathematician uh, in France decided that there was another planet. And a lot of people agreed because they were studying the orbit of Mercury around the sun. And they saw that the path Mercury took was a little bit strange. It was not a perfect orbit like they would expect, which means there must be something else close by messing up the orbit of Mercury. And so they did a lot of searches. And of course, he named the planet Vulcan, because you know if you discover the planet, you get to name it. The only problem is they hadn't actually discovered it yet, and uh, some people actually saw it, at least they said they did, and then they could never find it again. And finally, uh, this guy, you might have heard of him, came along named Einstein, <laughs> and because of general relativity, now Mercury's orbit is perfect. And there's no planet Vulcan. Sorry, <laughs> Trek fans, we'll have to, <laughs> yeah, anyway. Uh, so. Hopefully that won't happen to Planet Nine, because I'm pretty excited about having nine planets again. But <laughs> uh, the thing is, the, they have a lot more evidence this time than they did with Vulcan. So there's probably something going on, and it'll be exciting to see, you know, whether it's uh, black holes the size of fruit or something else. Uh, but one really big and interesting point here is if we do have a primordial black hole in our solar system, then there are probably a lot of them. In fact, there are probably enough of them that they could explain dark matter. 
which is one of those really puzzling physics questions. And you know, the name dark matter might be perfect if that's what it is, right? Black holes, dark matter, <laughs> be great. But if these little black holes were everywhere, they would be really hard to detect, but they would have a lot of mass, wouldn't they? So there might be something to that. We'll have to see. We'll have to see what they find or what they don't find, right? <laughs> and that's all the tech we have the time for. All right. Now it's time for Breakthroughs in Science with Tobias. All right, well, tonight for the breakthrough, we're going to talk about a breakthrough that was saved in the shower. Yeah. What? I don't remember that Einstein story. <laughs> no. <clears throat> we're talking about an incredible camera, and it's this one up here, the Hubble Space Telescope. And we're going to try to move through this very quickly, but why is this even a big deal? Why do we need a camera? up there. Why, why can't we just have it here on a tripod and aim it and take pictures of the, of the sky? Well, it turns out that if you've ever gone outside and sang that twinkle, twinkle, little star, and that one's twinkling, that one's twinkling, that's annoying if you're an astronomer, okay? <laughs> twinkling stars, it's because of the atmosphere and every, all that stuff in between us and space that's twinkling that star is actually making our study of space much harder. So what if we could get a camera out past that atmosphere of planet Earth into space? A camera with a telescope and we could actually see without looking through the twinkling atmosphere. So that was kind of the inspiration behind the Hubble project and it took a lot of convincing the people who uh, were pushing for this idea and eventually they got approval and NASA partnered with several other um, organizations and some companies to begin working on this huge project. Now, the Hubble telescope, if you look at it again, this is, it's like the size of a bus. And inside of it are a lot of different mirrors for use in, as a telescope, okay? So a lot of work, uh, years of work goes into building this. And finally, in 1990, they're ready to put it up in space. So they put this amazing piece of equipment into space and we start communicating with it and we start loading some of the first pictures. They call it first light. Where, okay, we're gonna look and see our first snapshots. So they aim this telescope and they take a picture. And it looked kind of like these. In fact, these are some of the pictures that it took. Um, and you know, that's pretty cool. It's kind of like, I mean, so Titus, I'm ready for my close-up. It's kind of like if we were going to do this nice close-up. Oh. Actually, that looks better. <laughs> no. Uh, but it was, okay, this was supposed to be the greatest telescope slash camera ever. And like billions, or no, one point something billion, millions. And it was producing blurry images. That's not a good day to be director of the Hubble Project, <laughs> um, as he would tell you. And all of a sudden, headlines are everywhere of national catastrophe. Uh, the, the Hubble doesn't work, basically. It's flawed. It, and cartoons making fun of NASA, making fun of the Hubble, just everywhere. And the director said he went to his office, and people were just 
like that. Not good. His assistant was drinking. It was not good. <clears throat> and he said, and I decided we're going to fix this. And he said, I had no idea how we're going to fix it. And I had no idea what was wrong. So they started looking into it. What is going on? Now, they would discover that it was the main mirror. And to, to kind of talk about this, um, basically it was the main lens of the telescope system. Now with the fancy telescopes, they don't use glass lenses like this, they use mirrors, okay? So this is a lens, like a camera lens, and if, we were, if you were close enough, you could see that it's actually bulging. Both sides of this lens are bulging. And what it does is it focuses the light. Now in telescopes, they do this, but it's flipped. Thanks to Newton, we've discovered that light, when it goes through glass, is diminished a little bit. So if you have a telescope, you're trying to see these really faint items. You don't want it to go through glass, so they reflect it with mirrors. And it's reversed. So instead of bulging mirrors, it's like a bowl. It's concave, okay? So it's reflecting. But it's the same idea. Basically, this lens takes all the light coming through it and focuses on it all at one point. Okay, so the light here comes here, the light here comes here, if it's a nice lens. Same thing with a mirror. Okay, the mirror on the Hubble, the main mirror was over eight feet in diameter. And it was engineered perfectly, perfectly, um, to reflect every piece of light at one point, the size of a nickel. Okay, well, eventually it would go to a mirror and then to another mirror. But they hired a company. Usually when there's a government project like this, some of the assignments go out to different companies. And this company's job, their job, was to do that eight-foot mirror, okay? And they had to get the perfect curvature of this mirror. And let me tell you how far off their curvature was. One-fiftieth of a human hair. So if you slice the human hair in 50 pieces, one-fiftieth, that's how off they were. So it's not like, Psh, you guys messed up? <laughs> you know, yeah, like we did. <laughs> but... You know, your first thought, at least my first thought, why didn't they test it? Well, they did, okay? And this is the part where the story gets a little bit sad or embarrassing because this company, they start figuring out how are we going to make a test to test this. And they make a miniature version of the mirrors, and they have this box that's going to sit in, and they, they're going to project these lines onto the mirror system. And the image that comes out should have all the lines straight. If any of the lines are a little bent, that means something in the mirror system is not working. So we need to have straight lines. So they get it all set up, and they have to have the distances perfectly in sync with all their calculations and measurements down to incredible amounts. So to do that, they have this main rod system made of a metal that doesn't expand in changes of temperature very much at all, and it's down to tiny, less than a millimeter of measurement uh, accuracy. And this thing is going to hold the mirror and the rest of the system at the perfect distance apart. Okay, so they're getting it all set up, and when they're ready to go, they are doing different tests, and that, that rod on one end, we're not going to get into the details, but basically it has a little imperfection nick that happens. And so when they run a test, it doesn't quite measure out. It's not aligned perfect. So, <gasps> good news. This engineer found three little metal shimmies. We'll just shimmy these in there and fix it. So they fixed it. Oh, it's so painful. Um, and they did their measurements and tests for the rest of the testing with this contraption. 
And then they did another test later, and there were some little issues, but they decided, well, this, this was a test with not our super accurate machine that we did at the first one. So if it's off a little bit, maybe it's okay. And then they turned around and said, NASA, we're done. And they literally had spent nine months polishing every day this glass mirror down to the exact amounts that that box and that their calculations told them it needed to be for the curvature. And it was just ever so slightly wrong. And NASA will tell you, we should have tested it ourselves, but they didn't. And so in it went, and they installed it, and they put it up. So that means there was something wrong with the mirror. So everyone's trying to figure out what's wrong, and the director's standing there looking at these pictures, and one of the elder engineers from JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, says, hmm, looks like a spherical aberration. He's like, a what? Yeah, a spherical aberration. What is that? And they talked about it, and he said, yeah, you can fix that. And it turns out that's what a spherical aberration is, where it's not shooting all or reflecting all of that light to one point. Some of it's a little too low, some of it's a little too high. And that means the glass isn't like warped in a weird way. It's just barely off. So they start trying to figure out, okay, how are we going to do this? How are we going to fix this? And Kodak said, hey, don't forget, we made a backup one, an eight-foot backup. And they thought about that. Could we take that up? They realized they'll have to take the entire telescope apart and put that in, in space to use that. So that's, no, we're not going to do that. And then they had the idea, let's put glasses on it. Let's have, like, you know, when eyes don't work right, you don't replace the eyes, you put glasses on it. it just a tiny little correction. So how are we going to do it? Ne next, that was the thing. So we have our big mirror. The light hits that big mirror. Then it goes up to a second mirror pointing down, looking at the big mirror. And that second one points it down the size of a nickel. It focuses it down on this little hole in the middle of the big mirror. And once it goes through that hole, it gets used in many different contraptions, about like five different um, systems that can use that light being reflected to take pictures and um, tests and so on. So they had to figure out a way not to focus and correct this once, but five places inside this telescope. So how are we going to get the mirrors that we need to fix this? Basically, they're going to do a little mirror the size of a nickel that is exactly the opposite of that 150th off on the big one. But how are we going to hold that there? And it's got to be perfect, precise. How do you make something that you're just going to stick in and it's perfect? So they're thinking, thinking, thinking. And one of the engineers decides to take a shower. <laughs> okay? That is some shower. <laughs> and he, it's one of those fancy European ones. So there's like this, this head sticking out. And you can raise it on this, this rod. It goes up. You can let go. It stays. You lower it. And then on the, the head, of course, has its own hinge. So it's like you can just wash anywhere, okay? <laughs> and it stays, and he's like, that is it. And he goes back, and they design, this whole thing has to fit in like the size of a shoebox that the astronauts are going to put in. They design a system that comes out of this little box, and then five arms, similar to a shower head, flip out that are motorized and can be adjusted. Here's a picture of the system that they designed. And these have the mirrors that were needed, and they were able to fine-tune. So they get it all installed, and here is a picture of before and after. Um, whew, that's just, and this, this changed, I mean, we could now see things like never before. Here's a picture of a telescope, a nice telescope, a view of this uh, nebula, and that's a Hubble version. So all kinds of, th that galaxy on the left, that's Andromeda. The nebula on the right is the Orion Nebula. We could see things like never before. So, and finally, to close, 
there was still a lot of negative uh, energy of NASA and the Hubble of how much money. And so you better have a lot of breakthroughs, NASA, because this was really expensive. Well, the director gets, if you're the director of Hubble, there's perks, okay? And one of them is you get 5% of all telescope time for anything you want to look at. Wow. <laughs> but so he decides, you know what? I, everyone's, you know, when it's your turn, you have to get it approved. And then I want to see this star. I want to see this cluster. He said, let's aim right above the Big Dipper at this really, really dark spot that there's nothing. Wait, you want to aim at no stars? That's right. We're going to aim right there. And it's so dark they had to take a slow shutter speed, a long exposure picture. And when you take a picture like that, you and you wait. You know, usually it's, you know, you go, and then you can wait 30 seconds. Anything that's that we see or that happens that is lit during those 30 seconds are, is in the picture. Well, they did an exposure for 100 hours. And to be able to do this, um, it was point, I mean, it goes around Earth like once every 90 minutes. So it's just sitting there pointing at that one little speck. And if you want to know the size that it's pointing at, if you held up a needle up in the sky, that's about the size that it's looking at. Well, after 100 hours, here is part of that picture. And those are each, at least most of those, are galaxies. There are some big stars also that it captured. And this is just part of that picture. And this broke everything wide open. Um, all of a sudden, this was a game changer. And there were breakthroughs and breakthroughs and breakthroughs on the kinds of research that you could do with it. So, you know, if you have hard moments, don't give up. And sometimes, take a shower. So. <laughs> And now introducing Roger Billings. Don't comment. <clears throat> mm. Is that what happens if I push the button, or is that what happens if something pushes it around me? I don't know. <laughs> okay. So we are prepared mm -hmm. for social distancing tonight. Mm -hmm. If you could be back just a little bit, I could take off my mask. <laughs> there we go. I think I'm safe. <laughs> you know, uh, <clears throat> this... It's kind of a fun adventure we're going through, isn't it? Everybody went, please don't shoot. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like I'm being robbed. <laughs> You're distorting my orbit. <clears throat> Seriously, though, um, last week I said, I wish we could have another comment. And immediately I started getting messages from students saying there is a new comment. And I thought that's impossible. So I went out and started looking for it, and it turns out that Sunday morning at 4 a.m. local time, I was able to find the comet, and I want to show it to you. He was telling us about time-lapse photographs, okay, you are. and this one was 10 seconds, and you can see I'm almost lit up. That's from the half moon, and there it is. That is the new comet, and what's it called? 
Neo wise. Neo wise. Wise Neo. Pretty neat. So it's <laughs> it's pretty big. Mm -hmm. It wasn't as bright as it looks because the time lapse photograph helped pull it out. But I think it's pretty exciting. Now, comet's kind of disappearing because it's getting too close to the visually to the sun. It's not actually there, but it's, it's between us and the sun. But on the 22nd of this month, it's going to reappear, and it's going to be in the evening sky, so you don't have to get up at 4 a.m. to be able to see it. But it's kind of exciting, isn't it? It is. It'd be really exciting to see it again. And on that news, I just wanted to point out to Dr. John and others that I was able to discover the ninth planet. Oh, yeah? No, and, and it did turn out to be a black hole. <laughs> Is that the size of a grapefruit? Yep. Oh, on the back it is. Look at yep. That. <laughs> if you get it the right distance, yeah. Um, I'll just put that right there so we can study. Okay, black hole. <laughs> uh, That's clever. And I still believe in Pluto. I just want to say. I do too. <laughs> it's back and forth, back and forth. I learned Pluto a long time ago, and I'm sticking with it. Mm. Walt Disney believed in Pluto too. <laughs> okay. Well, tonight we have some pretty exciting news that a lot of people have been waiting for because it's announced the Science Fair winners. And this year we had a lot of fun entries in our Science Fair. And before we get around to announcing the winners, I would like to show you some of the, the entries. Uh, these are just some we're going to pull through randomly. By the way, if you haven't seen the Science Fair entries, you can see them at Science dot edu slash science fair right. okay there it is and there it is 2020 acela science fair and if we scroll down whoop, we have three categories three age groups and so uh, let's start looking at some of these shall we group a and and by the way all we show on the website are the finalists and it's really wonderful it used to be the first science fair we had to show everybody three times to have enough entries. <laughs> and now we have so many, we can only show the finalists, which is fun. I hope you're all thinking about Science Fair for this next year. It's going to be exciting. But let's go back to it and pick out one of these and say, okay, can I find a chemical that can melt ice better than sodium chloride? Let's check it out. This is my Science Fair product. My question is, can I find a chemical that can melt ice better than sodium chloride? My hypothesis is that, yes, I think that magnesium chloride will melt ice better. The reason I think this is because I did some research on the internet and I found that magnesium chloride um, has properties like other salts that they use for melting ice and stuff on roads. Like, um, it doesn't like to melt, I mean, get cold but it does like to melt things. Sample ice. So I thought that it would be a good thing to use for a product. For my procedure, then I'm going to be taking about two cups of um, ice and I will be using two samples of magnesium chloride and table salt. And I'm going to put each of them with a cup of ice and after 15 seconds, of them reacting, then I'm going to strain each of them into a measuring cup. And I'm going to see which one 
created more water from it melting. Now we're going to do the experiment. For the experiment, then I'm going to take the magnesium chloride and I'm going to mix it with this ice. And I'm going to do the same with the salt. And after 15 seconds, I'm going to strain each of them into a measuring cup. I'm going to take the first one and dump it in here into the strainer. And instead of having a lot of ice in this one, I'm going to dump it into this bowl. And then I'm going to do the next one. And I'm going to look down here to see how much water each one made. And if the magnesium chloride sample has more water in the um, measuring cup, then my hypothesis is going to be proved correct. I'm going to dump each test tube in at the same time so I can keep my variables as constant as I can. Magnesium chloride got stuck. The magnesium chloride and the sodium chloride look a lot different when they react with the ice. Magnesium chloride is clear, like it's just ice, but the sodium chloride still looks like salt and um, is white and blurry. Now we're going to strain it. Oh, something interesting I want to point out about sodium chloride. What I found is that the sodium chloride, when it reacts with ice, it becomes hard and clings to the ice as if it were ice itself. Magnesium chloride does look like it created more water than the sodium chloride. You can also tell that pretty well from the top. This is the magnesium chloride sample, and this is the sodium chloride sample. My hypothesis was correct. <laughs> Zolta, my hypothesis was correct. The magnesium chloride melted more ice than the sodium chloride. We could use this, the guys that get the ice off the roads could use this because the um, magnesium chloride can melt more ice for a smaller amount than the sodium chloride can melt. And maybe in 2021, I can do a science fair project to see if it damages um, roads and cement and concrete like calcium chloride does when they use it on the roads. And I have to clean up this mess. <laughs> I don't want to overreact. Yeah. But that was pretty that cool. Was clever. Really cool. Yeah. Get it? Really Even cool. cold. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, now. We're just showing you some, and then we're going to announce who were selected as the winners. So just because we're showing them doesn't mean they won. Right. But that was really neat. Yeah. Let's, let's see if we can find another one, shall we? I liked it. I love watching these. Can dancing charge a phone? Seriously? We should watch that one, shouldn't we? Hi, my name is Awesome. Can dancing charge a phone? 
this magnet turns. When it goes past this wire, then it makes some electricity go past and it makes it light up. My dad helped me make this with the fire to turn on the lights. So the question is, can science be fun? <laughs> That's great. Pretty good dancer. <laughs> yeah, not bad at all. Should we see another one? Yeah. Okay, let's see it. Okay, what should we pick here? Will bean seeds grow different, differently in different substances? Okay. Hi, my name is Brooklyn Fredericks, and my project, my project is growing green bean seeds in different substances. My hypothesis was that coffee would grow the best. What I did was I soaked a cotton square in one tablespoon of liquid and added two Kentucky Wonder green bean seeds in each bag, and I hung them in the window. What happened was, on the fourth day, coffee and water sprouted. And honey, vinegar, salt water, and sugar water didn't do anything, except for salt water shriveled up the seed coat. <laughs> the conclusion is that honey, vinegar, sugar water, and salt water didn't do anything, but water grew the best and coffee grew okay. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Neat. 
So my first science fair project was about sprouting bean seeds and treating them with ultrasonic waves. This is amazing. I want to see another one. Do you? Yeah. Okay. Let's find another one. What should we do? Can we find gold using <laughs> gravity? Okay. Hi, my name is Tyler, and this is Justin. Our question is, can we find gold with gravity? Our hypothesis is that the gold is heavier than the sand in rocks, and that we can use gravity to separate it. Let's do this. <laughs> we chose two places to find gold. One is a stream and one is a river. This is a class spot. We're using it to sift the sand and particles. So, we're taking the sand and we're mixing it up so the the gold! <laughs> <laughs> you find the gold! You find the gold! And it can be rich! You like the So, this is a gravity ball. And what you do is you put some sand and you put it along the edges. And in about like 15 or 30 minutes, when you come back and then you can see the particles. Um, that are heavy are in the back and the particles that are light in the f coming up here. Now all the heavy materials are left at the base. So we took this to the lab and we used an analyzer and we found out what minerals were in this. 16% of titanium and 16% of iron. Was our heart hypothesis correct? Well, we didn't find any gold, but using gravity, we found titanium and iron. <laughs> the Rich Brothers, huh? That's wonderful. <laughs> I love them. <laughs> Okay, so <clears throat> you'd be amazed at some of these experiments. If you get a chance, go look at that. Science study to use slash science fair. And some of you that entered that haven't seen your things online yet, you should see them. Remember, these are all the finalists. Uh, let's look at another one. Will increased weight cause a zip line to move faster? I want to see how I can go down a zipline faster. My hypothesis is if I can increase my weight, then I will go down the zipline faster. These are my materials for my mini zipline. I made a mini zipline and tested each weight at 40, 30, and 10 grams. The idea is if it works on the small zipline, it will work on the big zipline. Sir Isaac Newton calculated gravity. Because of him, I can calculate that my speed will be much faster when I multiply my weight by turbo velocity 
which is uh, 9.8 meters per second squared, which is 98.1 newtons, 294 newtons, so 392 newtons. Thanks, Sir Isaac Newton. <laughs> I did 30 trials. Here on my graph, the time it takes to get from point A to point B is longer the less you weigh. So nice to see the parents getting involved. <laughs> okay, you know, there's a lot of science in these, and uh, that's an interesting result. I wonder what it means. Uh, let's watch another one. Okay, which one are we going to do? There's two there. We shall do any, many. Can lasers be used to, is that, to measure water purity? All right, that's a good one. Hi, my name is Troy. Can lasers be used to measure water purity? Light is the fastest thing in the whole universe. In a vacuum, it is 300,000 300, kilometers per second. In air, it's 299,000 kilometers per second. Water, it's Nine 
zero inches. And now, First, with it was 12.0 when it was pure water, and now we're going to measure again with salt, and we're that's 12.6. The light went slower when we put the salt in, so my hypothesis was correct. Now it's time to do some maths. We started with 12 and got 12.6. We can use that like a ratio. We multiply it by 225,000. So the salt in the water slowed the light down to 214,000 kilometers per second. We could use light to measure water clarity. That's super fast. Actually, that's a pretty amazing little instrument, isn't it? When you think about it. Okay, well, we're running fresh out of time here, but let's let's do one more. Okay. Okay. Can we find one more? Pick out a good one. Why is it important to wash your hands for a long enough period of time? It's very appropriate. My name is Joey Delella. Today, I am going to demonstrate why it is important to wash our hands long enough. My hypothesis is that the longer you wash your hands, the cleaner they get. In this case, I am going to use the black paint as soap. First, I am going to rub my hands together for 15 seconds. As you can see, I did not cover my hands completely. Now I'm going to do the same thing for 30 seconds. much better. <laughs> so now we can see how important it is to wash our hands long enough to make sure that all the soap gets all over our skin to kill the germs. <laughs> so we learned something from every experiment. Uh -huh. Do you notice from this we learned the longer you wash the dirtier your hands get. <laughs> <laughs> Well, <laughs> actually, we I think it was very clever. Very it's clever. very clever. Yeah. Well, it's time to announce our winners. Now, we have three categories by three age groups. 
and we're going to uh, give a first prize for each category. And the first prize winners win, as promised, a hydrogen bottle. Do you remember these? Wow. This is pretty neat. So if you happen to be a first place winner, expect that. The second place winners are going to receive a uh, Cellus t-shirt, stem shirt. Can we show them a picture of it? And there it is. It's got a stem robot on top. All right. And the third place winners in each category are going to receive our newest Cellus poster starring John Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody, somebody. Well, you knew John, anyway. John Wayne knew that person. Yeah, right. You guys were mm -hmm. friends, actually. Mm -hmm. And so, <laughs> tonight, to announce our winners is Dr. Peje Monet herself. <laughs> so, Group A, which is five to ten years old, the first place winner is Nathaniel Merrill. All right, Nathaniel. Second place is Anna Williams. And third place is Vera Cherry. All right, you get prizes. Yep, they're, they're coming. coming. To you. All right, second category. Group B is 11 to 13 years old. This is the group I'm in. <laughs> first place. Okay, there's three first place. How can it be? Because they did it together. Oh, okay. Max Clementson, Myla Clementson, and Ryan McCabe. All right. <laughs> Second place is Rosalinda Finn. And third place is Michaela Merkley. And group C is 14 to 18 years old. That would be your group. That's my group. <laughs> I'm right in the middle of 14 and 18. You may have won. <laughs> First place is Natalie Braden. All right. Natalie. Second place is Marissa Jordan. And third place is Zara Imtiaz. Very good. Okay. So this is our biggest science fair ever, by far. Mm -hmm. Only next year is going to be a lot bigger. They're wanting to know if they can start on their science fair projects now. Not until after we finish tonight. Oh. <laughs> of there you course, go. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. And science fairs uh, are going to get bigger this year. We're planning a bigger science fair, and I'm planning some bigger prizes. So uh, let's make it really fun. There's a, one more question. Um, okay, there's a question. Mm -hmm. The answer is yes. <laughs> what really? is the question? <laughs> the question is, is this just for SLS Academy students, or is it for homeschooler students submitting to SLS Academy? It's for anybody that loves science. Wow. Okay. That, that's a good answer. And it was yes. Mm -hmm. I already told wow. you it was yes. <laughs> <I know. laughs> Aren't you glad we asked the question? <laughs> yeah. No, this contest is for everybody, and it's going to be fun. really fun, and I hope you'll get very excited about it. We are going to have a couple times we talk about science fairs. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. We had a lot of young people that we showed. By the way, 
we showed mainly young because we only got to the A group. I was going to get to the anyway because um, they're a little longer than I was thinking. But you know, um, they get more and more interesting with time. But look at these young students mm -hmm. and how well they did. And this is the way to start. You know, you learn a lot from this. Uh, I'm still trying to figure out how you spell hypothesis. <laughs> it's you know, harder to say. It's a neat word, and the <laughs> whole idea of figuring out a hypothesis and then an experiment that you can create to find out whether your guess or your theory is true, wow, that's the way to be able to do a lot of things in this world. I think it's kind of neat, isn't it? So they can go, um, people can still watch those. Yes. You can go watch them the all, and, and you should. There's some real fun ones there, and you'll get a lot of good ideas for your science fair next year. Science.edu slash science fair. Yeah. Okay? Mm -hmm. There you go. It's fun. All right, good. Now, there's a, another item of business. This week is the week of the great wheat harvest. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We've been growing this einkorn wheat mm -hmm. all winter, all spring, and we've been waiting for it to get, <coughs> to lose my voice. It's the virus. No, it's not, <laughs> it's not even funny. No, anyway, <laughs> uh, we've been waiting for it to get dry enough to harvest, and these, this past few days we've been able to, to do our harvest. We've been kind of worried about whether we get very much or any or a whole bunch. And so I'd like to show you some harvest pictures. Let's start with this one. <coughs> this is the combine <coughs> going through the dry wheat field, cutting off the stems <coughs> and bringing the wheat into the machine. And it's pretty amazing that you can harvest all that wheat. Can you imagine trying to do that by hand? Especially with 92 acres. But look at that beautiful wheat. And, you know, this is done without any kind of sprays or things to kill weeds. And, and we're, we're pretty proud of that. Now let's, let's look at the next video and see more of this process of harvesting. There it is. That is the wheat coming out of the machine. I'm going to zoom over so you can see the machine. We've been combining it. There it is inside. And comes out through the conveyor into the cart so we can haul it over to the bin. And that is the tractor. <laughs> mm -hmm. So what about it? That's pretty cool. That's pretty neat, isn't it? It was a all good harvest. Yeah. All right. Yeah, it was an amazing harvest. I want to show you one more. This is what the harvest looks like. Now, if you'll notice, this wheat, it has a kind of a skin or a sheath around it, a hole, as it's called. And einkorn wheat is uh, unique in that the hole is pretty vigorous. It's hard to remove. And so now we have to take the wheat over and run it through the hole removal machine so that we can then start to make some bread. If you're going to plant it, you want to keep it in the hole because it holds a little bit of water. And so if you go a little bit longer without rain when it's trying to sprout, it keeps it moist. Now the good news is we were hoping that we would get enough to be able to uh, give out seed to people that are interested and also to get some wheat for people to try it. Um, 
How much did we produce? 120,000 pounds, which is more than we ever dreamed. So that's really, really good news. It's a lot of wheat. Yeah. Now this winter, we're going to try to plant, not we're going to try to plant, we are going to plant <coughs> 320 acres, which is a lot more. And if that works out well, we'll have about three times as big of a harvest, which is really exciting. I, I just love the concept of this ancient wheat because I believe wheat is a very healthy grain to eat. And uh, for a lot of people that seem to react with the modern wheats, many of those people are able to, to do okay with this einkorn. Now, it doesn't mean that it's going to work for everybody, so you have to kind of be careful and experiment. But uh, we're going to get a program to be able to sell, send out samples. Uh, if you want to make bread, you have to grind the wheat into flour. And they do that by rubbing two stones together on a wheel. And we're going we're gonna to show you the whole process, how we clean it, how we grind it. And then we've also uh, set up a system so we can put the wheat into a bag. And the bag is made out of plastic material, a mylar material, so you can kind of see through it. But interestingly, the mylar will let oxygen and water go through the plastic over time, so it'll make the wheat rot. And so uh, scientists have developed a process where they deposit a very, very thin coat of aluminum on the plastic, and it plugs up all the little holes in the plastic so that we should be able to store the wheat for 20 years and one of the th in a vacuum. And one of the things we want to do is to uh, encourage people to not only grow the wheat, but also to be able to store it so that uh, if you ever need some munchies, you can go down under the basement stairs or wherever you keep it, and you can have a lot of good, healthy food to eat for a long time. So we're kind of excited about this. Uh, a lot of the research that uh, we're doing right now is involved in making, producing good, healthy food and making it so we can do it all over by lots of people. And we're still pretty excited about the digital lighting to grow plants indoors. I told you we got a artificially, I guess I shouldn't say that, but a, an indoor light grown lemon, which to me was kind of like a milestone. And so these things are kind of fun. Well, that's all the tech we have time for tonight. <laughs> but I want to thank all of you for joining us. And uh, I'd just like to say, those of you that are annoyed by these masks, they are kind of annoying. Mm -hmm. uh, but boy, they sure can help spread the, stop the spread of these germs. And uh, I think it's a good preventative measure to wear them, especially if you're going to be around people uh, if you're all by yourself, maybe you don't need it quite as bad. But I think that the, the time that's very, very most important to wear it is if you have any kind of symptoms. If you have a fever, if you have a sneeze or a cough, boy, you really want to make sure you're wearing a mask before you're around anyone so that you don't spread it to them. And of course, if everybody was sick would wear them, that would be great. But just in case, it's nice to wear it. So if there are any germs floating around from this nasty little virus, 
that you be protected from them. You know, we're kind of having a, another wave of outbreaks. There are more people catching the virus again, even though we had a lot and then it went down and that's kind of going up again. But uh, are you noticing that this time it doesn't seem to be as serious with most people? It's more like the flu. The flu is, is not pleasant. You can feel very sick for, you know, several days or a couple weeks, but people get better. And it's just really good to know that we're getting ahead of this thing. So don't be discouraged. Uh, wear your mask when you go into public places. Uh, sometimes if you keep far enough apart, the reason they say stay six feet apart is so that if you sneeze or they if I sneeze, <laughs> if I sneeze, I don't want to infect Dr. Monet now, do I? Vice versa. So I'm putting my mask on. Oh, yeah, me too. Yeah. So take care of yourself. Stay healthy, and we'll see you next week. And we'll see you at the science fair next That's year. Right. Get busy. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us tonight. We will see you next week. Have a great night.